This episode of Motley Fool Money is supported by Wonder Capital, an investing service that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. Earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com fool. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser from MDP and Supernova, Simon Erickson, and from Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, there, Chris. We have got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will talk international investing with Portfolio Manager Bill Mann, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the big macro, the jobs report, surprising Wall Street with 287,000 jobs in the month of June, much higher than the consensus, Jeff, and nice to see after that report we had in May, which was disappointing, to say the least. Always good to see more people working, Chris. It means more money in their pockets, more money to spend on retail, which has been suffering for months on end, um, more cars being purchased and whatnot, and the, the confluence of more employment with really low interest rates and really cheap money to buy your car, for example should help the economy at least maintain this very slow rate of growth that we have seen the past couple of years here in the States. Now, for many people who are thinking, well, it doesn't feel like a recovery, part of the reason may be the U6 unemployment rate, which Ron Gross frequently references. That Thank you for stepping in for him on that one. <laughs> of course. That remains stubbornly around, or actually above, pre-recession levels, so above 2008 levels, around almost 10%. So that means about 10% of people are disengaged, not looking for work, or underemployed, or only you know employed in, in less than ideal work for, for their skill set. So you can't say our economy is still serving everyone well. I mean, I think Jeff makes a lot of good points there. The question I always come back to with any of these job reports, I mean, we, we always kind of, I think the, 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 the adjustments to the numbers, previously announced numbers, are always kind of interesting to catch. But but it seems like for all of the improvement we've seen in the employment sector, it doesn't feel like it's all that much better. And I mean, we look at things like our monetary policy, still extremely accommodating, um, interest rates all-time lows. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is no real sign that we're going to see that much action there. It seems like every time there there's sort of a, a light at the end of the tunnel, something like Brexit comes up to then sort of throw things back into chaos a little bit. And and I think uh, certainly Yellen has made the statement before that they're going to take this very slow. But I mean, savings rates are at an, at an all-time low or close to them. Uh, it seems like wages are still relatively stagnant. So, while the unemployment picture looks better, it doesn't feel all that much better. And I just I can't help but wonder how that's playing out with just the general consumer today. And I guess I'll add to that, too, that there's some cyclicality in the jobs market, too, right? We just saw Goldman a couple of days ago issue a report that they thought that 100,000 jobs are going to be coming back to the energy industry, which is, you know, as oil prices are actually starting to recover, you're going to start seeing some more hiring in that. Maybe that could be a little bit of a tailwind for better reports coming up, too. 
Yeah, but as we've talked about before, the energy industry has has been one of the leaders over the last probably 18 months or so in terms of cutting jobs. Absolutely. So, it's funny, part of the reason the stock market reacted positively to more jobs is the hope that that will lead to an in- increase in interest rates, which then drives financial stocks higher, and financials are more than 20% of the S&P 500. But the likelihood of us sustaining much higher interest rates anytime soon, and I mean within years, is very low. You have negative rates in Japan, you have neg- negative rates in many European countries now, and the U.S., with its piddly 1.3% 10-year rate on the, on the 10-year Treasury, is drawing money from around the world to capture that yield, and that drives the rate down lower. So, even if we increase rates, as we did last year, that's going to draw more money in and knock the rates back down. So it's kind of a catch twenty two, a we, low interest rate future. We talk about this monetary policy. We've talked a lot here in the past few years, I think, about how sort of when interest rates started inching back up, it becomes more attractive for fixed income instruments like savings accounts, CDs, and whatnot. But we can see plainly that this is going to be a very slow trek upward, and and I think that one, two, three years from now, I just don't really see much of a return, or at least an attractive return for investors in those fixed income instruments. I, I, I think that bodes well, generally, for the stock market, certainly for those dividend-paying uh, stocks out there. So, I, I don't know that we would see really a lot of money flooding back out of the market here anytime soon. All right, from the jobs report to the deal of the week, Danon, the French conglomerate, is buying White Wave Foods, the maker of soy and almond milk, in a deal worth $10 billion. That is a lot of milk they're buying, Simon. <laughs> a <laughs> a lot milk. of milk substitutes, milk. maybe, Chris. Uh, you know, A lot of these brands are actually for lactose intolerant people. Uh, look at things like silk almond milk, so delicious dairy-free ice cream, a lot of the organic brands. These are going for the two-thirds of the world's population that the... National Institute of Health thinks uh, it are technically lactose intolerant out there. French, this is going to be doubling the uh, the market for for Danon in the United States. It's going to be doubling their footprint that they have out there. the uh, The deal is interesting because it's fully financed by debt. Uh, this is basically paying about twenty times an EV, uh, EV to EBITDA kind of ratio, which is kind of expensive in my mind for a food company like this. But you also see that there is a lot of demand out there for organics. Uh, this is a market that has been pretty hot lately, and I think that they're seeing that there's a lot of um, predictability in food companies, and that's why they're they're not afraid to make this kind of deal. Yeah, Jason, we saw in this deal Dan and paying a premium for Whiteway. They paid about a 19% premium. Uh, that's nice, um, but that's not sort of the the premium that we've seen with other deals in other industries recently. Uh, and I'm guessing that's because if you just look at White Wave and the performance that stock has had over the last five years, that's that's a pretty uh, spicy meatball. Well, I mean, the <laughs> stock has performed well, but I mean, let's be clear: this thing spun out from Dean Foods uh, somewhere I think mid 2013, and I think to Simon's point, you said it was what around 23 times EV to EBITDA. That's right. You look yeah. at a comparable there with like Haines Celestial that today is trading somewhere in 15, 16. It is pricey from that perspective. Uh, White Wave's a company that I looked at for the million dollar portfolio watch list more than once and kind of came back to the conclusion that I like the business. The price was never attractive enough, but but what you like about this for, uh, for I, I think, Danon, who's acquiring the company, is going to give them the North American exposure that they don't have otherwise, and that's primarily uh, White Wave Foods' market today. Chipotle making headlines this week. Mark Crumpacker, the company's chief creative and development officer, surrendered to face a New York Supreme Court judge. He is alleged, and we're going to be using that word a few times. He is alleged to have been part of a cocaine ring, uh, apparently ordering three thousand dollars worth of cocaine delivered to his home on more than a dozen occasions.
occasions. And if you're wondering, ladies and gentlemen, how he was able to afford that, it's because he's been paid more than $15 million over the past three years in, when you look at his total compensation. And, and we've talked about this before, Jason. Right now, Chipotle has a brand problem. And the person in charge of their brand is now on administrative leave. Yeah, I mean, I would assume that um, Crumbacker is the brains behind the recent love story video that they just came out with. Perhaps the creative mind behind Chiptopia, their rewards program. And if I mean, if he was working long nights and this was kind of helping him get by, doing, I think he failed on both of these fronts. Like, I really this video to me, I. I actually hate it. I mean, I, and I'm a Chipotle lover. Hey, I love the food. I own the stock, and I, I really do think this is a company that will do well over the long haul. And perhaps they're having kind of a quickster Netflix style moment here, and where they're just really hitting sort of the bottom. But I feel like when they get out there with these cartoons, this love story thing, for example, what they need to do is get back to the business of doing what they do best, which is serving food that people like. I mean, it's clear that people eat there because they like the food. Now, fresh ingredients, I'm sure, don't hurt that cause, but instead of putting yourself up on a pedestal like that, just go ahead and get back to the business at hand. Like you said, they have a brand problem. They really need to really focus on 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 fixing that. And cartoons like this don't do that. I, I see a cartoon like this come out. To me, there's no upside whatsoever. You only have downside. And I think we're talking about that downside right now. And Simon, Jason mentioned the Chiptopia Rewards Program. I don't understand this from a business standpoint because it it has a shelf life of just three months. They're ending it at the end of September. Why wouldn't you go the route? Of uh, that, a lot of other fast casual places like Panera have done, um, where you've got an ongoing loyalty program. Why think short term like that? Well, that's exactly. I would completely agree with that statement. You do want to have a long term loyalty program because, as Jason was was saying, brand is very important for these companies out there. Uh, Chris, you mentioned Panera. Panera has got 22 million My Panera Rewards members. That's a that's an ongoing program that you can continually come back, get free stuff. Uh, for the more that you're spending there. But Panera has actually done a really, really good job with showing the power of those recurring customers coming back and into your restaurant over time. Stocks up about 40% in the last two years because of this this Panera 2.0 concept, which is you know you go in, you go to the kiosk, you don't just stand around, you don't wait at the register. It's getting the traffic through those stores, and that's why we've seen comps at, my, at Panera my 2.0 uh, stores 8% versus 2% comps nationwide. So this actually does work with the loyalty programs. Yeah, Panera has done a good job, and we, we've talked about it the past few years because it was, as you said, Simon, a, a pretty long-term investment that they started a couple of years ago, at least. In the case of Chipotle, I, I think I agree with both of you guys that they're in no place right now to set up their marketing as an us versus them, as good versus evil, and we're good. Uh, they just need to, to convince people again that it's safe to eat there, period. They still don't have the traffic that they used to have or any anything near to it. And to, so, to put yourself up on a pedestal seems the exact wrong move to make. And the, the loyalty program, hopefully this is a test, a pilot program, and then they'll, they'll keep it indefinitely, because I agree, why, why just try it for three months, unless that's what they're doing? I think that's it. I mean, we're getting into semantics here, perhaps, but I mean, I kind of see this rewards versus loyalty, right? I mean, I see one uh, in rewards being extremely short term, and, and then loyalty being something that you're trying to sort of promote long term behavior there. And the thing that Chipotle has done so well, and I think Starbucks has done really well here too, is they've developed a wonderful mobile presence. I mean, Chipotle's app is excellent. You can order food, you can find out where the stores are, you can pay for it there. 
they've done so well on that front. It seems to me implementing a loyalty program via that app only makes sense. It takes the thinking out of it. Now, perhaps they thought they were having a little bit of fun here with this rewards program, but there's no question from an investing perspective. I mean, I know I look at it this way. To me, this just reeks of trying to uh, juice those sales numbers here for, for a good quarter or two without really getting back to the basics of, of what they do so well in, in, in working on fixing that brand. So, I, I really wish we would see some more long-term style thinking there. Yeah, and Chris, we've seen these loyalty programs work for the airlines and the hotels now, right? You're starting to see a lot more focus on even just fast, casual dining. You mentioned Starbucks. Uh, Starbucks, uh, somewhat quietly, for the third July in a row, raising prices. And the fact that you said that and I didn't even know it is all you have to say. I mean, they have really, really uh, just executed on on all fronts there. Now, granted, the product that they sell helps. I mean, when you have an addictive product, I was say, generally when you, a, when you sell a legally addictive product, <laughs> is it's that what you generally mean? seen as as being okay for you. I mean, you're really, really putting yourself in a good spot. But I mean, I think that's a testament to how attractive pricing power is for an investment. Coming up, some news that just might have you packing your bags for Havana. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, and Jeff Fisher. You can check out past episodes of Motley Fool Money and all of our podcasts here at The Motley Fool. Just go to podcast.fool.com. We've also got two new stations to join the Fool family this week in New Hampshire, 91 91- 99.1 News in Concord and WTSN 1270 in Dover and Portsmouth. So nice. We get up to Welcome New to the family. Uh, let's get back to some of the week's headlines. Tesla Motors was supposed to deliver 17,000 vehicles in the second quarter, but the company fell short by 15%. Simon, they missed on deliveries, they missed on production. And I hasten to point out, these were their targets. This is not Wall Street's targets. They missed their own targets. Well, Chris, this is a classic Tesla move, though, right? This this kind of is one of the reasons you really can't put a guy like Elon Musk under the microscope every quarter, right? He's going to have sometimes he's going to miss forecasts like this. He's going to have others. He's going to overpromise, and he's going to miss a deadline. Or he's going to miss the product launch, and he's also going to say stupid things on Twitter every now and then too. He's not a real touchy feely kind of guy. So no. I think the bigger question for Tesla is: Are they going to be able to? To deliver 500,000 cars by the year 2018. They've moved that two years ahead of schedule. They've got the Gigafactory about a fifth complete right now. That's the looming deadline that really is going to matter for the future of Tesla, I think. Well, and that's the thing. If, if three months from now or six months from now, we're looking at how they did in terms of deliveries, in terms of production, and they beat by 15 20%, well, there's going to be a lot of champagne being popped on Wall Street. But it seems like we're seeing this play out quarter after quarter. And you've got already hundreds of thousands of pre-orders for the Model 3 that are already in place that people have paid $1,000 to get the deposit up front for. Um, that's already putting in the conversation of one of North America's best-selling vehicles on an annual basis. I think as long as Tesla can stick to their long-term forecast, they're probably going to be looking okay. I'm guessing, it's only a guess though, that this is partly Elon Musk driving his employees to try for a higher goal. You know, they may be saying we can do this many cars and he's saying no, I want us to do this many and that's what I'm going to say we're going to do. And he's setting the bar really high and just hoping they get close and eventually pass it. Pepsi's second quarter profits and revenue both came in higher than expected and the company raised guidance for the full fiscal year, so maybe not a surprise Jeff Fisher shares of Pepsi hitting an all-time high this week. 
all-time high, and the growth is really coming from emerging markets. Emerging markets like China, Mexico, Turkey, where sales were all up double digits. Overall, in developing markets, revenue grew 7%, which is giant for a, a company Pepsi's size. In the, in the U.S., uh, revenue was up 2%, kind of standard slow growth for Pepsi or Coca-Cola or any large food consumer packaged goods company at this point. Uh, Frito-Lay is driving most of that growth. Uh, but Pepsi is doing well in beverages too. They own five of, of the top 10 beverage trademarks in the world based on dollar sales. And I bet you guys couldn't name more than a couple of them if you want to try. Uh, I'm, I'm Pepsi. Pepsi's Diet, one. Diet yeah. Pepsi. Mm, no. No, really? Mountain Dew. The Pepsi, Mountain Dew. Very good. Pepsi, Mountain Dew, Gatorade, Lipton, and Starbucks. Their, their partnership with Starbucks is one of their biggest sellers now. So, the stock trades at 21 times forward earnings, yields nearly 3%. It's done well the past five years in line with the S&P, but uh, much better than the, the S&P the past 10 years. So. so, the trend that we've seen for more than a decade now in North America of soda consumption steadily declining, that's not a concern for them as long as they've got the growth in emerging markets? You know, as with Coca-Cola, it's such a concern that they're well aware of and in many ways well ahead of in that they've diversified the beverages they sell. And yes, they're moving into emerging markets where I would bet in 20, 30 years, they'll have to go through the same thing again, move away from the unhealthy drinks in emerging markets. But yeah, they're, they're ahead of that curve and they're able to grow, albeit slowly, despite that, that headwind. Shares of JetBlue, Delta, and American Airlines all up this week in the wake of those airlines getting tentative approval to operate daily flights to Havana, Cuba. The final decision from federal regulators will come later this summer, but right now it's looking like a brave new world, Jason. Sure, and I think this works out really well for us consumers, right? I mean, we have probably the inclination to go to Cuba at some point or another. It seems like a pretty neat place to visit. Now, we're going to have that opportunity. As far as airlines um, go, this doesn't really make me view them as, as any more of an attractive type of investment. I think airlines, generally speaking, have a pretty patchy uh, track record as it goes. Um, but again, I, th- I think that uh, from your JetBlues to to your American airlines, it's nice to see them all getting a little piece of the action. Let's bring in our man Steve Broda from the other side of the glass. Because Steve, I know you like to travel. I know you've been to Mexico a few times. Havana, Cuba, is that something I can interest you in? I don't think so. Really? Why not? I, you know, I don't know much about Cuba. It's it seemed like a sort of a forbidden country for Americans for so long, and I'd like to give it a little bit of time just to see how it goes for some other people before me. Doesn't the forbidden nature make you just a little bit curious, Steve? <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> you want us to send a world traveler like Jeff Fisher ahead and like have and him just report? Stake it out, make sure <laughs> it's good. It yeah. I mean, I'll go there, submit a they'll throw a couple of reviews up there on TripAdvisor. We'll steer you the right way. <laughs> All right, Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, Simon Erickson, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Coming up next, we will go around the world of investing with Bill Mann from Motley Fool Funds. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. The hottest spot north of Havana at the Copacabana. Music and passion were always the This episode of Motley Fool Money is brought to you by Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital is a Techstars-backed company with headquarters in Boulder, Colorado. Wonder Capital allows you to invest in solar projects across the country via their crowd investing platform. Your investment goes directly to helping U.S. businesses install solar PV panels. As they repay their loans to Wonder, 
you receive monthly cash flows in the form of interest payments. Learn how you can begin earning up to 11% returns at wondercapital.com fool. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Bill Mann is the Portfolio Manager at Motley Fool Funds, and he joins me now in studio. Good to see you. How are you? I'm good. Last, I don't know if you remember, last time you were on the show, you were in Japan. Yeah, so, so you, I, I don't remember much of that. I think I was, yeah. Sleep deprivation is a cruel, <laughs> cruel thing. Um, let's let's start uh, where we've been the last few weeks, which is the Brexit vote, and now we have the benefit of a couple of weeks of of hindsight. Yeah, what is the most interesting part of what has transpired? To me. Well, I mean, I think there are two interesting parts. One is we came out almost immediately after the vote, and it was, it was a surprise. What the the result of the vote to me was a surprise to everyone. Yeah, you look even to the people who were to who who were promoting it. They're like, what do we do now? But so the market, it you know, the equity markets dropped very quickly and then immediately rebounded. And the thing that I would not have expected, and of course, this is a little bit unfair because it doesn't look at currencies or anything like that. The best performing market over the two weeks after Brexit was the British market in the world. Nope. How, how does that even work? Well, I mean, when you build currencies in, it's a little bit different, but it just, I, I literally. I think when people say, well, if this, then this, then this happens in the market, just forget that every time that's not how it works. You uh, mentioned currency, so let's go there, because this week the pound fell to a 31-year low. Yeah, it was the pounded. Yeah. Yeah. So, one of the funds you oversee is a global fund. Yeah. When you look at international markets, is the UK more interesting to you now? Is it less attractive? Where is the UK as an investable idea? It kind of depends. And we had, I would say that our exposure to Europe in general and the UK has been a little bit lighter than you know than what our benchmark would suggest it ought to be. Um, for companies that have you know that that have. Uh, Staples that you know that that I I don't think this is going to be that huge of a deal. I mean, we own we 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 own a company in the UK that sells bicycles in the UK. That's what they do. So some of their expenses are going to be different. Some of you know there's going to be a, a fair amount of fear, I think, in the market for a period of time until they know what's 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 going to happen. But yeah, we I I would say that we are more interested than we were. Um, People are pointing to the currency as saying and 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 saying that now British goods are going to be more attractive overseas, and I think that there's something to that. Um, I think it's probably a little bit overstated, just simply because markets around the world, I mean, the Chinese market, the the Indian market, a lot of markets are in you know if not in um, um, recession, then they're pretty close to it. So there's not a whole lot of global demand growth, but there is something to be said for the fact that the that that British goods are going to be more competitive. Is there anything attractive about the banks in Europe, or are they in such a state of flux that I couldn't pay you to invest? In no, I think yeah. Uh, the, one of our analysts this last week basically said, "Yeah, I think free would be a good price for the for for, <laughs> for the European banks for the big banks." Think about this. So Deutsche Bank, which a decade ago had had goals of being one of the largest, most important banks in the world. 
is currently valued less than Snapchat. That's quite a fall. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, yeah, that's not good. So, a, you know, an app where your pictures disappear after 10 seconds um, is worth more than Deutsche Bank. So I, I would just say that I I never make you know I never suggest that the market is perfectly clear and you know and, and forecast perfectly well, but that would suggest that something is up and you know and and that up is certainly not good. At some point, I want to talk to you about this upcoming earnings season, but uh, before we get to that. When you look around the world, what are one or two markets that are looking interesting to you? Oddly enough, uh, you know we're 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 finding some things in Japan now. So Japan in 2013 and 2014, going into 2015, was one of the best performing, certainly the best performing developed market uh, economy, or, or mar- developed market market, which is hard to say, uh, in the world. Um, it's been crushed over the last, uh, you know, over the last year, down almost thirty percent, and so we're finding some things there. But, you know, just it, you know, again, we're not really looking on a market by market basis. You know, so you know, so for example, you know, thinking about thinking about Brexit, and you know, one of the companies that we had that got hit was a company that has all of its operations in Indonesia, and what they do in Indonesia is make bread. I really am having a hard time figuring out how it is that they are impacted by an island country on the other side of Eurasia deciding that it wants to go its own way. So, you know, things like that are, you know, we're we're we're, we're definitely looking uh at places where you know, the global structure of finance is you know, just they really have no uh exposure to it. Do you think that's why we're starting to see some of these uh, stalwart businesses, the so-called defensive stocks, get bid up as they have been over the past, say, six months or so? Is that is that because there is some economic uncertainty, and as we talked about earlier, certainly the Brexit vote took everyone by surprise, more, maybe a little bit more than usual, Investors are looking around and saying, "You know what? We're not. No matter what happens, we're going to keep buying bread. We're going to keep yeah. buying these staples." I think that that has something to do with it, and also I think that the other thing that recommends these types of companies as being bid up is the fact that they are now the um, the proxy for or the replacement for treasuries. I mean, you cannot get any yield off of a savings account. You cannot get any yield off of treasuries. I I, I saw the other that uh, this week, fifty year bonds in Japan now yield negative. Fifty year bonds. 50, excuse me, not not Japan and Switzerland. Fifty years from now, we're paying to lend the Swiss government money. And the U.S. is, you know, the the U.S. is positive yield, but not by much. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a two hundred and forty year low for yield. So anybody who is looking at any type of income has to look at those types of companies. But they they don't want to take a huge amount of risk on their principal. So that's why you see bread companies get, getting bid up in the United States. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Bill Mann, the portfolio manager at Motley Fool Funds. Let's talk about management. You and I were talking the other day about Michael Eisner, the former chairman and CEO at the Walt Disney Company. And one of the things in this interview I just recently listened to with him, he admitted that at the end of his 20 years 
heading up that company, he realized it was time for him to go. Yeah, he had a great 17-year career, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) That he was was fighting with everybody. He was fighting with Steve Jobs. He was fighting with Roy Disney. And and he just realized, it's time for me to go. Yeah. We talk about management and how important that is when we are evaluating investment opportunities. Do you ever find yourself uh, working with your investment team, looking at a company and saying to yourselves, boy, you know what? I'd like this business a little bit more if that guy or gal who's been running it for the past 20 years was going to be leaving. Do you, like all the time? Really? Yeah, all the time. It's one of the core. It's one of the core things that we look at. And usually, those types of those types of things will be expressed in what we think the company is going to look like over a ten-year period. And you can see in the returns on capital if you've got an idiot in charge, basically, and the idiot is entrenched. You really have very little hope that there's going to be a change. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to transition from that without assu- you know without uh, suggesting that I'm calling someone an idiot. But a really good example is Tootsie Roll. Tootsie Roll has been run by a husband and wife team for, you know, for 50 years now and they just do the things the way that they want to do it. You know, they they don't want to hear from shareholders. They they just simply have a very simple business model, but it's not particularly successful and they are entrenched. Well, yeah. and as we were talking about with Eisner, I mean, you you look at the the full breadth of his career running Disney. Yeah. He, he, overall, he did a fantastic job. Yeah. It was just at the very end. So, I mean, it doesn't even have to be an idiot running a company. It just has to be someone who's stayed too long. Even if they've had a lot of success, there are plenty of business leaders who just stay too long. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it's funny. One of the things that we think about, and one of the things that really, really makes me upset about about uh, corporate governance in the U.S. is how much executives are paid. It is, it is in almost every case, completely indefensible how much executives are paid. But there are situations where you look at it and say, well, that guy or that woman earned the money that, the, you know, that, that they're being paid. And Michael Eisner, who became a billionaire basically by being the CEO of Disney, just by himself not by himself. That's that. That's not the right way to put it. But turned a company that was foundering into a juggernaut in a bunch of different areas that that it wasn't involved in when he started, and it really was not even any good at its main business when he when he took over the reins. We're about to kick off a new round of earnings. What are you and the team at Motley Fool Funds looking at? It can be in terms of a particular industry, a particular company. Or just uh, as as we talk about from time to time, a company that really needs a hit. Really needs a hit. So, and I think I said this the last time I was on, and you asked me this question. But uh, I'm interested to see what's going to happen with Chipotle. I mean, I think that there 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 are a few. Tesla would be another one that it's you know that that it's going to be fascinating. Although they'll probably once again tell us at you know like 11 p.m. at you know on a Saturday if there's there are problems. But Chipotle. I'm getting a lot of I'm I'm getting a lot of uh, stories and you know that some of their new menu items are really getting some traction you know and just going out and doing some of our channel checks the the restaurants are more full than they have been but they have done so by discounting and by you know and by creating a loyalty program that could be pretty expensive for them but 
it'll be really interesting to see that what's what's going on with them. I think more broadly, a lot of the retailers are going to be interesting to see. Um, I'm pretty sure. In fact, we should probably come up with the bet now of how many uh, blame Brexit. <laughs> Right, like that's right. Well, there's there's no winter weather to blame. No winter weather to blame. The Pope's not here. I think that was one once. Yes, but Brexit, and yeah, I wonder what the most bizarre company to blame Brexit is. I was I was just gonna say, and and they wouldn't do this because um, my experience, and I'm not a Home Depot shareholder, but my observation of Home Depot is that they are are very clear eyed. With their guidance, very very straight laced in terms of this is what we feel. Yeah, like we, we we screwed up here. I, yeah, I think we, I've heard them say those words. Yeah, we, we we messed this up. We thought this went pretty well. I mean, that to me would be the classic example because they they got nothing going on in the UK. <laughs> so if, or like Chewies, right? The yeah. <laughs> regional Mexican chain. Well, Brexit really messed us up. How? Not that Chewies did this. I, you know, we're, I'm projecting, but I'm trying to think of the company that would be the most absurd to blame Brexit. You know what would be fun is if is if a a let's just take a restaurant company like Bojangles um, comes out has a phenomenal quarter, and yet just for fun they decide to invoke Brexit. <laughs> In there, like, well, we were worried in about. In spite Bre- of, we were worried about Brexit, you know, and just try and play it off straight lace. Wouldn't that be great? Um, last thing, and then I'll let you get back to work. Uh, you are a fan of many sports, yeah, but you are one of the biggest soccer fans that I know. Between Copa America and Euro 2016, how much fun are you having this summer? Oh, it's been a great summer. It's 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 been a great summer, despite the fact that the team that I love the most, uh, Newcastle United, has been relegated. Uh, so they will play in the not highest division in the UK. By the way, I think that American sports should have relegation. I think it would be the greatest, and it would solve it would solve so many things. Like in the NBA, the teams tanking at the end of the year. Well, you know, if you tank too much, you're playing in League Two. You're playing in the Development League Seventy right. Sixers, which you know is they'd probably still lose a lot of games. <laughs> It has been it has been a phenomenal summer and it hasn't just been the fact that there's a lot of soccer on television. I mean just some of the stories like Wales and Iceland, you know these countries that never make these big tournaments have come in and just beaten some of the big guys and done it not even playing like small ball soccer. I mean Iceland came out and punched the punched the England team squarely in the face. I mean, they went out and they, you know, they they were aggressive and they beat them, and it was beautiful to watch. I, I say that apologizing to anyone who is England fans. I'm sure they would agree on some levels that that was the on case. some level, but yeah. you know, coming r- right around the same time as the Brexit vote, it's been a rough few weeks. <laughs> It's been a rough few weeks for England. <laughs> That's right. Like, can't we just have this, <laughs> this one thing? But you know who understands exactly that whole thing? Iceland. You remember Iceland in 2008 probably had a harder time than anyone. So they are perhaps on the other side of that, you know, of 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 going through the valley of the shadow of death, and they're coming out on the other side. And now they've got a winning soccer team. If you want to learn more about what Bill Mann and his investment team are up to, you can go to FoolFunds.com. That's FoolFunds.com. He is the portfolio manager. Thank you for being here. Great to see you, Chris. Coming up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. money. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, and Jeff Fisher. It is that time, once again, gentlemen, time for the stocks on our radar. And we'll bring in our man Steve Royda from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at? Sure thing. Every summer, we are lucky to have interns here with us in the investing group. I'm working with uh, Jake, the intern, this summer. Jake Bedronsky did a great job here pitching me on Ulta Salons. Ticker is U-L-T-A. Often, we say turnarounds typically never turn around. This is a case where a turnaround really turned around. And and I think we we owe a lot of that success to Mary Dillon, the CEO of the company. Came in there mid-2013. Share price was around $95 or so. Uh, stock has returned about 160% better than that since then. And makeup is just a really interesting market in that it's not going anywhere. As a father of daughters, I, I can testify to that. And I think there's something to the bricks and mortar nature of it that uh, they're continuing to really uh, take advantage of, and they're building out an e-commerce business as well. The questions I have are in regard to the actual growth left, um, and exactly how far they can take this e-commerce uh, business. But all in all, uh, it's been a remarkable turnaround. It's one that we have on the watch list at MDP. Steve, question about Ulta Salon. How do they do with? I've been in an Ulta Salon. They've got you can get haircuts and stuff like that. How does that business? Uh, that's actually really interesting. I was speaking with Brian White, another member of our team there, who used to work in this business. And because they have the salon business, it gives them the opportunity to sell and carry professional products that you can't get otherwise. So that actually turns out to be a very big advantage for Ulta as a distributor. Simon Erickson, what are you looking at this week? Uh, Chris, I'm going with Baidu. Ticker is B-I-D-U. This is China's largest search engine. Just as Google has come to dominate the United States, Baidu has come to dominate China. Uh, stock has been selling off because of the investments that they've been putting into their online to offline platform. What this means is that advertisers um, are no longer just getting an interest in their products from search from users that are searching for that information on Baidu, but they're actually closing the transactions themselves too. We saw gross merchandising volume on Baidu up 268% year over year. That's going to be something I'm watching as I really think that's going to be the future for this company. Steve, question about Baidu? How does internet usage uh, compare to from China to the U.S.? Is I'm assuming people in China consume the internet very differently than we do here. It's a big country and it's often rural. Uh, that is true. It's more spread out, Steve. But still, uh, one trend that is very similar is the use of mobile uh, for searching the internet is increasing significantly. Baidu is now getting 60% of internet traffic from mobile devices. Excuse me, internet revenue from from mobile devices, and I think that's a trend that we're definitely going to see going forward too. Jeff Fisher, what are you looking at? Skyworks Solutions, ticker is SWKS. I've mentioned it before, but not for many months. It's had a rough year. It's down on concerns that Apple's uh, smartphone sales are lower, and that the uh, iPhone 7 coming out later this year may not be a giant hit, is the early concern. But the stock is inexpensive, and they're moving into Internet of Things. They make, uh, sorry, they make semiconductors for, they sell into almost all smartphone models out there, but also into Internet of Things devices. Uh, well-run company, increasing margins, highly profitable, and I think has a bright future from here. Steve? It seems like every company out there says, we're now in the iPhone. This is like the <laughs> leading selling, every Amber, all these companies. Is is this worth something, really? It's, it's so true, Steve. The iPhone creates its own economy. It really does, and many companies are dependent on it. What I like about Skyworks is it's not so dependent. It is a large part of, of revenue, but they're moving away from that steadily. What do you like, Steve? 
I may go all to salons on you. Hey, now. All right, Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, Jeff Fisher. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Uh, our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 